What was it like to be a member of the Old Testament church? How did they stand firm in the valleys and shadows of trials, but not be shaken? The Psalms represents personal journals of the author's relationships with God. The thoughts and feelings they express help us, even today, draw near to the Lord. Looking over the landscape of the Psalms, we discover the same God. And here are people of the same nature as ourselves, facing the same kind of life as we do, and finding that their God is present through every trial and rejoices in every triumph. Summer in the Psalms explores one of the most diverse books of the Bible and the wisdom in these songs of worship to God. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to be your relief pitcher today and glad to be with you here at First Church picking up on this really great series, Summer in the Psalms. I've enjoyed hearing others preach from this and I'm really excited to share with you today. But before the message, I, I want you to know that I stand here today as a survivor because you see, we had four grandchildren staying with us for a week. <laughs> well, actually it was four nights, but it felt like a week. And, you know, we took him to the Berrien County Youth Fair. We did all kinds of great adventures together. But one of the things that you, you recognize when you've got in the house a five-year-old, two nine-year-olds, and an 11-year-old is that a lot of your day is spent kind of trailing behind, picking things up, putting things away, you know. And so I, I have new sympathy from my daughter and her husband for what they're trying to raise these kids to to pick up after themselves. It reminds me of a story that I heard of a, a mom who got exasperated with her kids because they were always leaving toys or articles of clothing. And finally, she laid down the law and she said, I'm going to tell you what, kids, you get an allowance. And so from now on, every article that I have to pick up, a toy, piece of clothing, an uh, empty dish or whatever that behind you, I'm going to charge you a dime. And so came the end of the week, and among the three kids, she had totaled up her score that basically they each owed her a dollar. So the kids all, uh, they put it all in an envelope. She found it, an envelope with the payment plus a $1 tip, and on the front it said, thanks for the good work, Mom, keep it up. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> that's kind of how we felt this week. You know, when I was a child, my mother had a pottery cookie jar. It was orange, it had flowers painted on it, and believe it or not, I found it on Pinterest, you know, of all places. Look at that. That's exactly it. Pretty ugly on the outside, but boy, was there good stuff on the inside. <laughs> and my mom kept that full of Nestle Toll House cookies. That was her treat that she made for us. And when I was a boy, before we moved to the farm, we lived in the suburbs. And when I was a boy, I'd be out playing with my friends and I'd regularly sneak back into the house to get a cookie. But you know, at certain times of day, that was the forbidden fruit in our house. You know, like a little bit before lunchtime or before dinner. 
And uh, that pottery lid, because it was, you know, fired in a kiln, it, it had a distinctive sound. And if you, if you bumped the edge of the cookie jar, it would make that sound. And my mother, I was a big fan of Superman, and I thought that she had that supersonic hearing because from somewhere in the house I would hear a voice, Bobby, are you in that cookie jar again? So friends, I tell you, I developed the skill set of a safe cracker <laughs> to be able to sneak into the house, lift the lid, extract the cookie that I was not supposed to have at that time of day, put the lid back soundlessly. There's one problem. As much as I enjoyed the cookie, I was almost overcome with a sense of guilt. You know, we're conditioned in our lives pretty early in life about guilt. It means that there's a standard of behavior, there's a standard of expectation, and when we fall below that standard and we're not meeting what we, we know we should be meeting, not only in our parents' eyes, but in the eyes of our, of our teachers, and especially in the eyes of God, we are finding that guilt is a constant companion. Now, the ways that people deal with guilt, I think, are fourfold. The first way is people deal with guilt by just denying that it exists. Denial is the first of the four. Denying guilt exists is um, kind of like hardening your heart. When I, when I was a kid growing up, I was uh, told that our soft, tender heart is a soft conscience, and there's like a pinwheel of guilt going around, and it, and it hurts. But that eventually we can build up the calluses and no longer feel the guilt. That's the denial. The second thing that people deal with guilt is by rationalization. Well, there were extenuating factors in my life that caused me to behave this way. It was pressure in my marriage. It was pressure at my job. It was the teachers who treated me wrongly. It was the promotion I didn't get. It was some other factor that injured my life, and I'm trying to self-medicate. And so we rationalize the guilt. An even more dangerous thing that I've seen as a pastor is what I'll call relativization. Say that fast three times. Relativization, which is to simply say we look around us and we say, well, I'm about as good a Christian as anybody else here. And so we try to measure ourselves against one another instead of against the standard of the Word of God. And we try to make our guilt seem less intrusive because we're measuring what other people are doing and how they're living their lives. But there's a real genuine way to deal with guilt, and this is what we're going to talk about in our scripture text today, and that is when we accept our wrongdoing, we admit it, we confess it, and we repent. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 130. If you have your Bible and you want to keep it open, uh, we'll have the verses on the screen, but you can follow along as we kind of extract the meat from this incredible psalm today, Psalm 130. 
from despair to hope. That's the journey that we're going to be taking today. Before I read the text, I'd like to just give you the sermon in a sentence. And if you understand this sentence, you'll get the whole gist of what I'm going to talk about. As we experience deep distress on account of sin and separation from God, I'll pause right there. That's part what guilt does is it causes a separation from God. As we experience deep distress on account of sin and separation from God, we pray for compassion and forgiveness as we trust in the promise and the provision of God's love. Now, that's the sermon in a sentence. Let's jump forward and read the text. From Psalm 130, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. From the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. Hear my cry, O Lord. Pay attention to my prayer. If, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn from you. We might learn to fear you. I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on him. I have put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than centuries long for the dawn. Yes, more than centuries long for the dawn. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love. Isn't that a beautiful qualifier? Not just with the Lord there is love, but with the Lord there is unfailing love. His redemption overflows. He himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. This is the word of God for the people of God, so let's move forward with thanks to God. Imagine a person walking through a wilderness area and suddenly found themselves stepping on unstable ground and being thrust into a deep well. And this person is alone. The walls of the well are slippery and there's no traction, and there seems to be no way out. And as they're in the mire and the pit of the bottom of this well, all that the traveler can do is to cry out for help. Help me! Help me! Hoping that someone will hear, but fearful that no one will. It's into such a predicament that the writer of this psalm is writing and saying, out of the depths of despair, I cry out to you, O God. Today, we're going to be talking about the God who can rescue you from despair, can rescue you from the depths of whatever you're facing. And as I've been preparing for this message and reading this psalm, it just seems to me like it's a, a four-act play. And so let me preach it that way, like a four-act play instead of a four-point sermon, a four-act play. So what would we call the first act? Act number one, the curtain goes up. It is a cry from the depths. And here's, here's what we hear. This 
urgent cry from the person swallowed up in the mire, and it feels that every time he or she twists or moves that they only sink deeper and they are becoming frantic and sense of lostness and hopelessness. And that's how the psalm opens. I want you to hear how pastor, author, and devotional writer, and also biblical um, translator, although we don't call it a translator, we call it a paraphrase, Eugene Peterson wrote the the message paraphrase, and listen how he deals with the first two verses. Here it is on the screen. Help God, the bottom has fallen out of my life. Pause right there. Friends, I know that in a room like this, there may be somebody listening who right now would say, that's me. That's me. The bottom has fallen out of my life. Master, hear my cry for help. Listen hard. Open your ears. Listen to my cries for mercy. You know, in these psalms, there are seven of them that are called the penitent psalms that biblical scholars have said, you know, the the author of the psalms did not say, here are seven penitent psalms, but in studying them said, there are seven of these. And this is one of the seven, but I want you to hear that there's a parallel over in uh, chapter or Psalm 69. I want you to hear the parallel to what I just read. Save me, O God, verse 1, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink into the mire. I can't find a foothold. I'm in deep water, and the floods overwhelm me, and I am exhausted from crying for help. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. Wow. That's honest, isn't it? And that's a portrait of people who feel that they need help in the journey from despair to hope. So that's act one of our play. Where can I turn? We know that we need a Savior. Today I want to ask you, what is your pit that you feel that you're in? Are you in despondency, discouragement, the pressure of not knowing where you're going in your business, uh, a broken relationship that's painful uh, in a marriage, in a workplace, financial woes, addictions. You see, what I'm trying to say is that many people are turning to some source of help other than calling for God. We live in a modern culture that causes people to try to self-medicate their pain. And as pastors, we see what happens to people. We see that people get caught into addiction. They get addicted to substances, whether it's alcohol or tobacco or marijuana or some substance. They, they get addicted to pornography. They, uh, they find themselves in the pit of despair, and they say, I don't know how I'm going to get out which then turns us to act two. Help me, Lord, I need a Savior. How will I get out? Act two, confession and forgiveness. The psalmist knows that his cry is not 
in vain. He knows that God hears him. He knows that what God will meet him with is not with judgment, but with grace. Do you believe that God hears your prayers? When I was pastor here, it was customary for me to have prayer partners, and one of my prayer partners was a retired minister named Cecil Baldwin. And, and many times when we'd pray together, Cecil would open his prayer by saying this, Oh God, we thank you that you are a God who does hear and answer our prayers. You know, many times I heard him say that, and it always resonated with me, that great faith of this retired pastor to say, we know that you hear, we know that you answer. And look at verses 3 and 4, now as Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. Let's read it together. Why, you, God, if you, God, kept records on wrongdoings, who would have a chance? As it turns out, forgiveness is your habit, and that's why you're worshiped. In the New Living Translation, it uses the word, if you kept a record of our sins, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. Imagine a ledger book. Years ago, when we were planting a church, we used the great tool called evangelism explosion. And one of the illustrations that we would use in sharing the gospel was the ledger book. And the ledger book was where God records all of our infractions, our words, our thoughts, our deeds. And page after page is this ledger book of our debt growing deeper and deeper. We're further and further from living right with God. But just imagine that God had a big stamp. The Greek word is tetelestai, paid in full. Other translation is when Jesus said, it is finished. It's over. Your debt is erased. You owe it no more. That's God's grace. We see it again and again in the New Testament. Probably one of the best known examples is when the religious leaders brought a woman who was caught in adultery and cast her down in front of Jesus, expecting that Jesus would join them in stoning her. <clears throat> but you know what happened? The sinless one, the only one qualified to pick up a stone, looked at the faces of all the others and said, let the one of you who is without sin cast the first stone. And the accusers began to turn and to walk away. Until Jesus, the sinless one, qualified to cast the first stone, looked at the woman and he said, Woman, where are your accusers? And she said, There is none, sir. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. He called her to repentance. He called her to a new life. But he said to her, I have not come to condemn you, but to save you. John 3, 17, for God so loved the world, he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be 
saved. That's the good news for you today. And so we fear him, we worship him out of reverence and thanksgiving for the forgiveness and the grace that he's given to us, an opportunity to live a brand new life. Which takes us then to Act 3. As the curtain falls on Act 2, confession and forgiveness, we know that we have that opportunity to confess our sins, like it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, but if we will confess our sins, if anyone will confess their sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Anything on your account that is an infraction against God is cleared away. The old has passed away and the new has come. New life. Curtain falls through confession and forgiveness. Now, Act 3, the curtain opens and we call this act waiting for the Lord. Now, this part in this text has been most fascinating for me to think about in today's world, waiting for the Lord. I want you to look at this verse again from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, verses three through five of the message. I pray to God my life a prayer and wait for what he'll say and do. My life's on the line before God, my Lord, waiting and watching till morning, waiting and watching till the morning. He emphasizes that because in the midst of the night, the morning is such a welcome gift. When I was a kid, I went with my dad and a bunch of Boy Scouts. We went up to Canada to go fishing. We went so far back in, we had to take these boats and canoes and portage over beaver dams and go through these inland waters. And I don't remember where we went. I just know it was a long way from civilization. And on that rocky shore where we were trying to sleep that night, the shore of this lake, we didn't sleep very well. You, you try sleeping on, with a rock as a pillow. You know, it was, it was terrible sleeping but good fishing. And we remember waking up early in the morning and watching eastward for the first hint of light on the horizon, watching and waiting till the dawn. That's what God is saying to us is that in the midst of your sense of brokenness, in the midst of your sense of despair, you need to develop the activity of waiting. The first two acts of this play were action. It talks about crying out to God. That's a big action. Confessing our sins actively to God, asking for repentance, receiving, repenting and asking for forgiveness. That's an action. But now the psalmist takes us to inaction and says, wait, now wait. Why? because we get so far ahead of God. I'd say one of the disciplines that has been lost in our modern culture is the idea of waiting upon the Lord. 
We live in such an instant microwave culture. We want everything fast. We want it now. We, we don't want to wait. That's, that's the whole idea, except I've been in a couple restaurants where I said to Renee, these people have taken the fast right out of fast food. <laughs> you know, you've waited an interminable amount of time. There was a, there was a funny uh, meme on YouTube of these two dads who were supposed to be in charge of a bunch of unruly kids while their wives went off to a retreat, and they were trying to get on Amazon to order what's called mommy eyes, like eyes in the back of your head. I don't know if any of you ever saw this, but the funny part of it to me is that they said, oh, there, that's it. He says, order it. So the guy hits the button, and the minute he hits it, the doorbell goes ding dong, and there's an Amazon package there. Just, And I laugh because... That's sometimes how it feels is you order from Amazon and the doorbell rings. And that's the kind of culture we live in. We want microwaves. You know, when, when my little brother was a baby, he was 11 years younger than me, we had a saucepan on the stove and you put the bottle in there and you'd warm it up the slow way. But our kids have no idea what life was like without a microwave, you know. Everything is fast. We want it now. But sometimes we have to open the scripture that says, wait on the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. One of the things I've been discovering in my own spiritual life the last few years is this discipline of silence, of just sitting before the Lord in silence. Sometimes I imagine God saying to the angels, finally, he shut up. Maybe he can hear what I'm going to say. Because we, we're so busy talking and demanding and expecting, and sometimes it's important to just sit before the Lord, open the Word, and let God speak to us. And the Lord says, wait on me. Now, growing up in the church of God, the older folks, like my mother, who's now 89, and others who went on before her, they used to have a phrase that they used a lot. They'd say, have you prayed through? Maybe some of you have heard that phrase, praying through. It's, it's a evidence of someone who is in deep prayer before the Lord, and they, can, they stay consistent in prayer until there's a sense that the burden is lifted or the assurance is given. That's what praying through is. How many of us have time to pray through. You see, if we want revival in America, it has to come through prayer, not through preaching, not through programs, but through prayer. Be still. Gain the depths of God's heart. And when you do, the curtain lifts on the fourth act, which is the promise of hope. The promise of hope. Now, you see this journey going through this psalm, but I want you to notice something as I read verses 7 and 8 from the message. Here, look at these words on the screen. O Israel, wait and watch for God. With God's arrival comes love. With God's arrival comes generous redemption. No doubt about it, he'll redeem Israel. Buy back Israel from captivity to sin. 
Now, here's what's happened in this psalm. The first three acts were individual. It was the psalmist talking about his relationship with God, his sense of despair, his sense of calling upon God. But suddenly, he has prayed through, listen, he has prayed through, he's waited on the Lord, the dawn has come, and now this psalmist has become an evangelist. And he is now speaking to his countrymen. Oh, Israel, wait and watch for God. With God's arrival comes love. If you read uh, some Bible translations, mine has a little note right beside Psalm 130. It says, a song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. That's why this is called a psalm of ascents. Now, if you've been to Israel, maybe you've had the same experience as me. One of my favorite places in Israel, I, any place I talk about in Israel, this is one of my favorite places, but this really is one of my favorite places, is the steps that would lead up to the Temple Mound, although now that the Muslims control the Temple Mound where the Temple once stood, these are a, a massive stairway that leads up to a blank wall. You can see the archway still in the wall where the gate used to be, but now it's all bricked up. And so here you are sitting on a staircase, having devotion, knowing that you're on stairs that lead to nowhere. But the thing that's meaningful is that Jesus taught on these steps. You can see it referred to in the New Testament. The apostles uh, came to worship going up these steps, and countless pilgrims came to Jerusalem by way of these steps leading up to the temple. So what I imagine is the psalmist, having prayed through, having got the victory, is, is going up the temple steps. And when you're there on those steps and you turn around, you can see the topography and you can see that Jerusalem is on a high hill, a city on a hill. And you can just imagine all of the pilgrims of years gone by who were looking up toward Jerusalem and they could see the long line of people proceeding up those steps. And here's the psalmist halfway up the steps and turns around and says, listen to me, my countrymen. Listen to me. Wait and watch for God. He's coming with great love with generous redemption, will you receive it? And I think that's a word for us today. I think it's a word for our country. Because you see, we have to wait and watch for God's activity. Oh, there are so many people in our country today, they've heard of God. They have a secularized view of God. It's a, it's a cultural view of God, but they don't really know God. They've heard about God's mercy and his forgiveness, but they've never experienced it. Maybe some of you are sitting here today and you're saying, I still carry the terrible weight of my sin. The Bible calls the enemy, in this emphasis, the accuser of the brethren. But in Revelation 12, the scripture says, the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. He's been defeated. He has no claim on you anymore. Will you receive what the Lord can do for you? This is the good news, that if we will believe 
on his mercy extended through the death of Jesus Christ. You see, God came to earth in human flesh, as we know. He dwelt among us. He did miracles. He showed his preeminence. He showed that he was a ruler over land and sea and nature. He was betrayed. He was persecuted. He died a criminal's death on the cross. And John chapter 1, the scripture says, but to any who believe on his name, who believe that he's the Messiah, he is the one who came and he paid the price for our sin. He is the one who came and he gave us the way to new life. He is the one who paid the price on the cross when his blood was shed as the Messiah. There is no sacrifice ever needed. And the scripture says, if anyone will believe on this, this same Savior who was died and buried rose again as we sang earlier in the service and the line of Judah says the grave has no hold on me and he ascended into heaven to prepare a place for us that we might be with him where he is. That's our promise. And that's moving from despair to hope. When we planted a church back in the 1980s, there was a fellow who came to our church. His name was John. And every time I saw John, I'd say, hey, John, how are you doing? He'd say, got a big smile, and he'd make this gesture. He'd say, fantastic. And after a while, you got, I kept hearing that over and over. And finally, I, at a men's breakfast one morning, he came early, and we were pouring coffee. I said, John, how are you doing? He goes, fantastic. I said, all right, it's just us, so let me ask you. You always say that. What? do you really mean that? And he got real serious. The smile went off his face and he looked at me and said, Pastor, if you will know where I was, how deeply admired in sin I was, the years I spent in prison and the brokenness I experienced and the new life that I now have because of Jesus Christ, I want to say to you, Pastor, that every day, in my life is fantastic. Changed my heart, changed my life. This brother is just talking to me about, I live a new life. I had, I had a fellow come up to me after the first service who said he had a similar experience in his own life and background, and he said, I share his story. That really touched me. And I don't know who you are today and what you might be experiencing, but I want you to know that you can have a fantastic life through the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's three lessons that are in this text that I want us to apply to our lives. Let's take a look at them. Number one, from the deepest depths of misery, our cries of repentance reach the heights of heaven. Just like Cecil said, God hears and answers our prayers. If you sincerely call upon God, he hears you and he will answer. Second truth, the more vivid our sense of sin, the more appreciative we are of the blessing of forgiveness. Oh, we live in a world that has just tried to 
to take the sin equation away, and we've renamed sin. We say somebody misrepresented the truth, which is a long way of saying they lied, right? And the Bible says, do not bear false witness. It's one of the Ten Commandments. But we've taken sin away. Carl Menninger wrote a book, Whatever Became of Sin, was a bestseller, and it, it's important. The third thing that we need to know is we now serve the Lord with loving reverence in gratitude for his salvation. You know, you get to a place in your life where you're constantly saying, Lord, what do you have for me next? What's your next assignment, Lord? And when you begin to live that way, you will become an agent of the kingdom of God, that his kingdom may be on earth as it is in heaven. I want to close today. Our time is up. I want to pray for you. And I want to pray, if you'll bow your heads, I want to make this a twofold prayer. I, I think I need to pray for us as individuals. But just like the psalmist did, I, I think we should pray for our country right now. And we should pray for this broken culture in which we live. So let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, I come before you in Jesus' name. The one who had victory over death in the grave and promises us that we can have new life. There may be people here in the depths of despair and brokenness and pain today who are crying out to you even as I pray, oh God, please help me. Have mercy on me. Give me a new life, a new sense of hope. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in this room as I'm praying to give the assurance to those who need that gift of the Spirit of God coming into their lives to minister to them. Lord, please minister to them in Jesus' name. Give us an image of our Lord Jesus walking back and forth through these rows, putting his hands on our shoulders, loving us and encouraging us and reminding us of his grace. And Lord, we live in a very divided and broken nation right now. There's so much anger and so much hatred and so much brokenness and so much despair and so much gloom and... Lord, we sometimes just say, what's happening? The Bible tells us in the last days, the chasm between darkness and light will be ever more evident. And so we pray for our, ourselves as a church family. Lord, help us to stand bravely as First Church of God in this place in the world where you've placed us, that we will be a shining light of your love and grace. And we pray that in Jesus' name, that you will expand the effectiveness of every sermon that's preached and every believer who reaches out in compassion to others. We pray, Father, for revival in our community and in our state and in our nation. And we agree together in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which inspires us today. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.